Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Following on from our cults episodes once again, we thought it would be interesting to dig into a tangential subject that we never really quite got into, which is secret societies. Because fundamentally, a lot of the classic cults in Call of Cthulhu, particularly, say, the Order of the Silver Twilight, really have more in common with uh, secret societies and magical orders than they do the kinds of cults we've been talking about. Once again, I've called upon expert help for this because I know almost nothing about the subject myself. But happily, my old friend Robert Howells has been a researcher in this area for a great many years, has written a number of books, worked in television, and actually knows what he's talking about. So welcome, Rob. I hope I live up to that introduction. (laughs) Thank you, Scott. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, my pleasure, Rob. Uh, so, perhaps if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about the kinds of things you've worked on over the years. Sure. So, my name is Robert Howes. I'm an author and researcher in many, many different areas, uh, but primarily it began as an interest in secret societies. Um, I'm the author of three books. Um, Inside the Priory of Scion was my first book where I got very close to and involved with the secret society called the Priory of Scion that was made famous um, in a Dan Brown book, um, The Da Vinci Code. I'd encountered them back in the 1990s before any of that had come to light when they were relatively unknown other than a publication in 1982 called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. Um, That was one of my starting off points in this area. I began researching secret societies, having read that book and a few other books. And I just I had a genuine interest in whether there were any real secrets left in the world and whether they had Mm. anything of value. Um, And and that's what sparked me off. And from there, um, I moved into I got a job at Watkins Bookshop in London, which is one of the largest and oldest occult bookshops in Europe. Uh, it's been going up for well over 100 years now. Um, and it was while I was there that I really got involved in different areas. I encountered um, a number of different organizations. I can give you a run through. Um, so I encountered the Priory of Scion. I encountered alchemists, Sufis, Freemasons, Order of the Knights Templar, Order of Lazarus, Royal Dragon Court. It's kind of endless list of wow um yeah and they were all very interesting and and very open in some cases and quite uh quite friendly the freemasons had a habit of taking me around freemasons hall and the the library and trying to get me to join um, because they were very interested in someone (laughs) with my knowledge and my interests Uh, and it gave me a lot of insights into what they were about uh, and who they were so, yeah, and I then studied, I was studying many of the esoteric areas. Um, prior to sign, have a, a lot of their members are interested in alchemy. Um, so a lot of the esoteric arts would appear in some form or another. Uh, Freemasonry has a lot of Kabbalistic ideas in it. Um, and, yeah, I, I took a genuine interest in these groups. I also encountered some cults or what are considered cults or new new religious movements. Um, and some of the magical orders that are currently in circulation today. So I had a kind of exposure 
uh, to a number of these different groups. I've since written two more books. I wrote one on prophecy and the prophecy of the popes in particular from St. Malachi. And my my third book is on the Illuminati, which is Secret Societies and Counterculture and how many of the modern counterculture movements like anonymous function like secret societies and in some way continue their ideals. So Hmm. (laughs) that's a potted history of me. Well, that is a damn good foundation upon which to build this discussion. Let's start off then by, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I was intrigued by the fact that these terms, cult, secret society, and magical order, tend to get very muddled in Call of Cthulhu. And I just wanted your help in trying to unpick those and try to identify really what, particularly what a secret society is and how it differs from the other two. Certainly. So secret societies, in theory, have one, at least one nameable secret or teaching at their core. And this will be transmitted through um, systems of morality plays uh, as rituals or through symbolism or through books and information. And the secret can be a number of different things, and it depends on the purpose of the secret society. So a secret society generally has a purpose. It has something to protect. I won't go into detail just yet. I'll spring on to Hmm. magical orders, for example, often came out of secret societies. So secret societies would be researching something. The very early ones tend to be heretical. Um, some of them are criminal, like the Tongs in China are a secret society. Uh, so you can have a secret society like the Mafia, for example, which are a criminal mm. organization, which is why they are secret. Um, but many of them were originally either her- heretical or political. And that tends to be secret societies. They tend to be passing down knowledge that for some reason isn't permitted in the public domain or is under threat or creates a threat. And they tend to be less religious. Cults are definitely the more religious of these groups. They, they tend to be around a belief or a, a personality in particular. So they'll have, but a, a secret society would have a piece of knowledge. So a really good example of this is the Freemasons, we know a lot about the Freemasons, a lot of that you can really get access to. One of the problems researching secret societies, obviously, is they try and keep secret what they've got. Freemasonry, <laughs> we know, um, for example, in the 17th degree in the ritual of the 17th degree in Freemasonry, it's called the Night of the East and the West. And the candidate reenacts um, the, what the original Knights Templars did. They're in the Holy Land, they're in Solomon's Temple, and they're excavating, and they find documents, and that is the ritual. And that is a piece of history that is protected by that ritual being carried out and passed down. And it's basically the Freemasons saying, this is our lineage. We come, our beliefs come from those documents that the Templars found and revealed. Huh. And then if you look into other aspects of Freemasonry, you look at the third degree, which is a ritual of death and rebirth. And mm. it is the ritual of the raising of Lazarus. So in Christianity, you have the raising of Lazarus as a biblical miracle attributed to Jesus. So Jesus, son of God, raises Lazarus from the dead in a town of Bethany. 2,000 years earlier, or more, Horus, the son of Ra, raised mm. Osiris from the dead in the town of Bethanu. It's the same story. <laughs> So the Freemasons are using it as a ritual because it was 
a ritual. It wasn't just that they stole the story and stuck it on Jesus. Even in the Bible, they're transmitting knowledge. So they're transmitting knowledge of a ritual, and the ritual is kind of an elaborate version of baptism. It's you die and you're reborn into a new life, and you can leave your old life behind and all its trappings and all its negativity and its issues. Would you say that that parallels to uh, levels of initiation in uh, magical orders and the idea of uh, sort of ego death and developing a, a magical consciousness afterwards? Yes, definitely. Definitely. And we'll come to that connection. Uh, I'll link secret societies to magical orders as we go. So what, but mm. what you have there is knowledge that the Freemasons appear to have had, may have came from the Templars, maybe an alternative, more authentic version of Christianity, so, or a practice, a spiritual practice that's been lost. So there is a, definitely this harking back to a lost knowledge and an idea that people knew things that we no longer have access to. And old families, in some cases, the aristocracy are very bound up. Um, if you're a, a prince in the royal family in England, you're immediately a 31st degree Freemason, which is a knight oh, of the wow. royal secret. Huh. Um, so yeah, they're all they've, the Masonic thing goes right back. So there's a, there's a lot of aristocratic families bound up in secret societies who are passing down mm. knowledge about their own families and passing down relics and artifacts and passing down these rituals. And if the rituals stay intact, they can potentially, and the fact that that's symbolic, they can hide information. You can hide information in symbolism in quite plain sight for other people to discover. So often with a group like the Priory of Sion, they will disband and then they will reform at a later date when there's something else for them to do. And as long as they recognize the symbols, you don't need a direct lineage. You can come and go from society as you're needed. Isn't that the kind of thing, though, that is wide open to being exploited by charlatans? I think secret societies don't tend to recruit in the same way as that's another thing. One of the differences between cults and secret societies mm. is definitely the recruitment methods, where they do tend to be far more selective and harder mm. to get into, whereas cults are out there trying to recruit people desperately. These guys are a bit more um, uh, restrictive, I would say, in who mm. they approach. I mean, it's widened out. Freemasons, there are different levels in Freemasonry now, especially in Grand Lodge, UK. Uh, there's the knife and fork brigade who turn up for the dinners and because they'll think it will somehow boost their career or, or their mm -hmm. business connections and are not that in touch with the esoteric side there is though within that there is still quite a movement that are quite esoteric european freemasonry far more esoteric they've still got alchemical lodges hermetic lodges uh, that are fully oh, active wow. and recruiting and and so what happens in a group like Freemasonry is they become a kind of centre for people who are interested in different subjects and interested in more than just what the religions we're given are. Um, mm. So they're looking at the world slightly different. And it's people like Isaac Newton who wrote more about alchemy than he ever did about science. He was mm. a huge alchemist. Um, so those kind of learned people who would get together and study and pull their resources and pull their knowledge, but do it at, at a time where knowledge and information is controlled, the Catholic Church was responsible. The monks in the Catholic Church were the scribes up until the 14th century, 15th century, when we get the printing press. Up until then, the church controlled knowledge, it controlled education, it controlled what could be disseminated. 
So these are alternative ways of passing information. So a lot of secret societies have real lineage. They go right back. Or they appear to go right back, or at least hark back to the tenets of earlier civilizations or, or, or groups. So a lot of Freemasonry is bound up in ancient Egypt. And you can see it in their architecture. You can see it in their designs and documentation. They sort of saw Egypt as a kind of golden age that can be re rediscovered uh, and recreated. I mean, personally, I think Egypt was a golden age for the pharaohs, uh, not so much so for the the hundreds of thousands of slaves that died dragging blocks around. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of at different at odds with the, uh, the Masonic view of some things. Um, mm. But you can look at, you can get a map of the Louvre, get a map of Paris, look at the Louvre and its gardens and the exact shape and draw an outline around it. Look at the Temple of Karnak and they map onto each other. And they even mm. went to... They even went so far as taking the obelisk from the gate of the Temple of Karnak and putting it at the end of the gardens in the loop. And they just basically recreated Egypt in Paris and things like that. It's a very Masonic thing to do. But yeah. was that just done for aesthetic reasons or was it done for a, a more esoteric one? A bit of both, really. It's that kind of evoking the power of the past and evoking the past and the symbols of it. Uh, I mean, the Louvre now has a pyramid in the middle of it, which is a, a mm. real giveaway. Um, it's a recent, <laughs> most recent addition. They've, they've shoved the pyramid in there to say, look, it's all about Egypt. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Mitterrand was a very big Freemason, put lots of Masonic stuff around Paris. Um, mm. There was an interesting thing that's done with the Templars where they recreate Jerusalem in different places. So in the southwest of mm. France, there appears to be a – there's a – a town called Jaffa's uh, and the, um, the kind of Jaffa Gate and the Via Dolorosa and all that are mapped out in landscapes and things like that, linked back to when the, the Templars were there in the Middle Ages before they were suppressed. Uh, and they appeared to be, having kicked out of Jerusalem, having decided to build their own. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of carryover. And again, that's things like the transmission of knowledge through architecture the idea of the sacred geometry and these kind of things mm. um, as ways of transmitting this information within churches, which is quite an impressive thing to do. Um, a labyrinth on the floor in Chartres Cathedral. It's not a maze, it's a labyrinth, uh, which is mm. a psychological tool of, of tracing back through time and, and into your own consciousness and back out again. It, it, there's a, a symbolic reference to it and it's covered up all year round there's one day a year where they uncover this labyrinth and it's a very pagan thing so again you've got these old mm -hmm. lost religions that may have had more value um a lot of it goes back to what i think it, it is a lot about rediscovering i think uh, certainly the templars going to the holy land and suddenly being exposed to um the kind of gnostic ideas that were still there uh, and the information that could still be gathered up um, underpinned what they came back with and then what appears to come out in Freemasonry. And there is a point where the Templars disappear and a lot of, uh, with their money and then the guilds, particularly the stonemasons, suddenly become very wealthy and the building of architecture and the Gothic cathedrals and all that become quite esoteric, um, quite hmm. symbolic. So there's a lot of that going on. So we, I think really around the transmission of knowledge and also their own teachings, their morality teachings are done as plays, they're done as these rituals. So you learn things mm. through the rituals and you're progressing. 
through a kind of semi-psychological experience uh, that should imprint something upon your brain. You should learn something, not just by reading it in a book, but by reenacting something. Right. Yeah, because I mean that sort of ties into a, a question I sort of um, bounced around my mind as you were talking there, which is if a lot of these techniques were ways of transmitting knowledge at a time when that knowledge was suppressed for religious reasons or political reasons, it strikes me that we're not living in an age now where knowledge is suppressed in quite the same way. Then, I mean, is there still value to these techniques then because they provide an experiential way of learning? Or is it really sort of a, a hangover from another age that you know, seems quite archaic in, in today's terms? I think there's a number of things in there. There's one, yes, it's a system of learning morality and learning betterment. So it's a self-development system. So that has a value mm. uh, within the Masonic but there are also things that have been the prior sign are very interesting for this because their idea is that they leak things into the public domain at various points in history and they do it through art and literature and, and all these different ways they see it as ways of moving humanity forwards to evolve in humanity so a big thing around the prior sign that they were linked to the idea of the bloodline of jesus and there were the, the jesus mm. was married he had children and they become the basis for the um, kings and queens of Europe. And yeah, I could I can draw you a line from one to the other, and there's enough evidence either way, um, depending on whether you believe Jesus existed or not, to back that up. Mm. But the interesting point in time that they released it, um, it's actually more about the, the, the thing around Mary Magdalene being not being a prostitute, but being mm. actually an emancipated woman who was a businesswoman and had, was self-set up and not dependent on any man and how that was written out of the Bible. And mm. it, it comes back to this idea of the lost feminine, that Christianity has removed one of the archetypes. In fact, most of the male-dominated religions removed that archetype of this self-empowered woman um, who's sexually active and successful and a figure of power and we're missing that archetype in our built in our makeup and that's why you see you know everything from the difference in pay gap between men and women to basically objectification and things like that all stem from the archetypes we have of women are of the mother the whore the crone mm. you know and we're missing that that woman and we're missing the Mary Magdalene figure. From uh, Even if you're not a Christian, you were raised in this environment and in this society where that, um, that understanding is just not there. So if, if a footballer sleeps with a thousand women, it's, you know, the newspapers are away. And if a woman sleeps with a thousand men, she's a slut. Um, yeah. And that stems from a, a loss, a, a gap that we have. So the whole piece about Mary Magdalene and her importance and her being the queen to Jesus as king works on many different levels. So it works on that, that kind of historic level where it's rewriting the wrong that was done to her. It, it, mm. it actually, I mean, Jesus is referred to as a rabbi in the Bible. You, you had to be married at the time. Um, mm. And there are these, this 
ongoing belief in history, even in the Catholic Church in the south of France, has a stained glass window of Jesus saying to Mary, woman, I give you a son. And there is the whole story oh, wow. of her coming to Europe. Yeah. So there is this heresy in the southwest of France where even the Catholic police, priests believed it. Um, and the whole story of her coming to France by Greece and her tribe, tribe of Benjamin, I don't know how far we want to get into this, the tribe of Benjamin were exiled from Jerusalem. They went to Arcadia in Greece. And mm. Mary leaves supposedly the Holy Land and comes to France and, and stops off at Greece. And if she had a son with her and he was left there, the weird thing about Arcadia in Greece is it's the birthplace of the Frankish kings. It's the beginning of all European bloodlines, basically. So you can draw yeah. this line. And if you read in the Bible, in cha- you know, in uh, Matthew book one, chapter two, it says Jesus, Jesus was, it gives you the entire lineage through Joseph right back to Abraham. And in Luke, it gives you the mm. lineage back to Adam. And it's basically Jesus, king of the Jews. Here's his lineage. And then this idea that the Frankish European kings, and this isn't a new idea. The um, mm. um, Some of the royal families four, 400 years ago were claiming to be of the lineage of Jesus. And there were hints about this in things like Parsifal talks about um, being of that lineage. Um, it, so it turns up in fiction. It turns up in art. There are paintings by Nicholas Poussin that are really interesting. Um, that seem to indicate Mary Magdalene's role and purpose. And then we have things like the Nag Hammadi Library is discovered, which has a gospel of Mary Magdalene, mm-hmm. where she's clearly the confidant of Jesus and the other disciples complain that she's been party to his inner teachings and they have not, uh, and that she mm-hmm. somehow has more knowledge. And that book starts, sadly a chunk of it is missing, but it starts with her rising, talking about rising through these levels, through the aeons, uh, and it's a very Gnostic kind of scripture. And there's this idea that mm. there is an inner teaching of Christianity that's Gnosticism, that's quite Gnostic, and uh, and that that was then rediscovered and is being passed down. That still causes problems if you try and release that today. You know, you, you're still facing. Um, mm. So the idea is that things are leaked at certain times to put ideas into consciousness that Mary was this, that we've lost this part of the divine feminine. So the other thing about the repression of the feminine is the feminine is the intuitive side. So we, mm. in, in men, Jung had this idea that men, men have a female soul, women have a male soul. Mm. And the idea is that you, your intuitive side is your Gnostic side. It's through intuition you, could, you have direct access to the divine. It's the idea of talking to the higher self or to a higher power, the classic holy guardian angel um, mm. is a great – there's actually a very, very simple way of experiencing it where you literally shut your eyes, go into kind of do a basic meditation, walk up a mountain and imagine you see a wise and loving presence like an old man, and you talk to him mm. and he speaks to you and, and it's like someone else talking to you. And it's the experience mm. of talking to a different level of your unconsciousness. You know, I wouldn't and, – and I've seen this in – you know, when I read people that are channeling information and all that, I often wonder if they're merely talking to their own higher self. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's quite accessible. And this idea that the intuition and the feminine side could open up that. You do away with priests, popes, religions, everything. You find you, it becomes a relationship between you and the divine. So it does away with the need for any church. 
And I think a lot of these teachings head towards that. I mean, certainly the Illuminati teachings from the original Illuminati, um, when you get to the Rex level, the highest level, you are kind of your own person, fully in charge of yourself with your own relationship with the divine. And they didn't give you anything to do. They just let you go into the world and do do what you felt was the right thing to do. Having taught you morality, having taught you that kings were of no more value than normal men and that priests had, should have no say over people's spirituality, you were then allowed to go into the world and to in, enact that and to teach that uh, either by example or by force if necessary. Um, to bring that into the world. So these secret societies are doing those kind of things at that level, or at least they set out to. What they become over time can be problematic or can be watered down or lost, unfortunately. Well, that's sort of what I wanted to uh, move on to then, which is you've painted a fantastic picture there of, you know, say, the Priory of, of Sion trying to drip feed this information into the public consciousness but i mean that sounds like a very specific example where you've got these hidden teachings these secrets at the cause of secret societies that have kept them going you yeah. know w what does happen in the modern day when you know that secret is a bit superannuated or is not really the purpose of the secret society anymore or you know is, is almost becomes totemic yeah, I mean, you can look at some of the secret societies that were born out of these groups. You can look at the influence that, say, theosophy had on the Thule Society on the Nazis and how oh, that's yeah. got completely yeah. perverted. You can look at uh, Neo-Templar orders or a number of groups that form wishing to uh, emulate the Knights Templars uh, but become groups like the Ku Klux Klan who are a Neo-Templar order, covered in Templar symbolism, basically religious Templar symbolism. Huh, so they okay. would claim to be a Templar order when, in fact, they were a complete farce. Um, mm. uh, they're an abomination, really. And in the same way, I mean, an interesting thing from your perspective, from the gaming perspective, is that secret societies, if something like Cthulhu existed and you wanted to warn people, but you couldn't put it out as truth, because it's too shocking, mm. you can put it out as fiction. So you would employ someone, you would recruit someone like Lovecraft, show them the information you've got, and ask them if they could write it as fiction. And it would disseminate into the public domain, into films and books and all sorts of things. And if anything occurred, the people would recognize it and be able to deal with it in a lot better way. <laughs> so rather than go mad instantly, <laughs> you'd, yeah. you'd have a chance um, so in that way, you can kind of meta, <laughs> you can meta Lovecraft by bringing him into your secret society. It's, it's like inoculating people against the madness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and, and if you'd been through rituals where you'd been shown things or exposed to things, if you were then to go into a situation where you encounter something, you'd be far more robust. So it would make absolute sense. I, I couldn't. I could never understand what a Miskatonic university wasn't a secret society because everyone <laughs> would know. It'd be, look at that place. They, they, you know, they're monster hunters with loads of dodgy books. And it's like, actually, within the Miskatonic university, we have a secret society and they have a library. And if you're mm. trained and experienced uh, and exposed to these things gradually, 
a lot less sand loss occurs. <laughs> and if we feel that something wider is going to happen at some point, we can disseminate this. We could recruit an author who's got um, perhaps racial issues and issues around the importance of blood, and we can use mm -hmm. him um, to disseminate this information into the world so that when it starts to come to pass, it's not such a shock. So, yeah, I, th I think there's a massive gaming kind of potential. I, um, I could mm -hmm. only see these investigations happening almost as functions of secret societies. How else could they transmit this knowledge through the ages? And, mm -hmm. and, and what would you do? There was a group of people got together worldwide who were worried about how we bury radioactive materials. And they yeah. wanted to build monuments that people would recognize in the distant mm -hmm. future. So they would know what they were, that there was something there that needed to be avoided. And they came up mm. with this idea and they, they came up with all these versions. They finished on this kind of ring that was an elevated ring. And then somebody looked at it and said, oh, that's Stonehenge. And I thought, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> this huge radioactive site. Under Stonehenge. Uh, and that was their idea of how to do this guy. How do you do think? How do you pass on this information? How do you do it in a way? Rituals <laughs> never change. Art. Art is a brilliant medium. Uh, Hieronymus Bosch painted pictures of Catholic priests, making them look like complete idiots. And these were paid mm. for by the Catholic Church and hung in Catholic churches because they didn't understand the symbolism of them. <laughs> so you had all these really kind of Albigensian paintings of these idiot priests who were completely ridiculed in Catholic churches because they didn't mm. get the symbolism. And it's for, it's those who have eyes to see. So if you know the symbolism, you go in there, you look at it, you think, I get that. And it's the same with the sacred geometry or it's the same with alchemical symbolism, for example. Um, so the transmission of knowledge uh, and what that knowledge is to be used for, I think that's primary to kind of Cthulhu investigations, what you're doing. But with that transmission of knowledge, if you look at secret societies as being these engines to transmit knowledge mm. over generations, surely, I mean, when we look at how that happens in religion and in politics and in any other sort of human structure, the problem with it tends to be that there are people involved and people have got their own agendas and they <laughs> deliberately change things for their own purposes or they just make mistakes and the signal degrades over time. Uh, does that happen a lot with secret societies? Not so much. Uh, it tends to be that there is an understanding of the rituals and the rituals aren't allowed to change. Okay. Uh, and, and there are many, many lodges that, that really do a very poor version of reenacting the rituals. But there is there are lodges that absolutely stick by them and are strict. They're called strict, there's the strict observance. And there's this idea that you just strictly follow these rituals. So the older the ritual, the better. Uh, and you follow it completely to the letter, even if you don't fully understand it. And then it is mm. communicated down perpetually in its perfect form. And that's one of the reasons art was so useful, because if something's encapsulated in paintings, paintings are never thrown away and they're never edited or changed. So they remain a fixed point in history. To some extent, I trust art more than I trust history in some cases. <laughs> um, you know, there are, there are paintings of medieval monks with concubines. So the idea that monks were celibate only goes back a certain date and then you can see paintings. You know, uh, mm. 
that say otherwise completely and you think oh okay and it's a bit like if you're in the in the east and you see um tantra carved into temples you look mm. at that and you think okay there was a point where this was okay to be in public now it's not yes um, yeah paintings of muhammad exist up until the late 19th century so there are lots oh, of really? dis- yeah lots of designs and works of art of muhammad um hmm. running right up to around the start of the 20th century and then you can see the exact point where somebody said yeah get rid of the pictures <laughs> we're not allowed to do that anymore <laughs> and everyone just assumes that that's back that's backdated over history so art evidence mm. is otherwise it's a really good source of protecting knowledge and art, art appears a lot in kind of around the cthulhu these ideas these paintings mm. that reveal things or portals or because art it tends to be left alone it doesn't usually i mean if the vatican went around and covered up all the privates and the statues by bolting brass plaques over them for a while in Rome, <laughs> um, sadly. So, you know, there's a certain amount of censorship and vandalism that goes on from time to time. Um, but art is a really good medium for protecting knowledge, uh, unscathed. But, yeah, there are there are people within secret societies and they will use it to their own ends. And there are, like mm-hmm. in Freemasonry, you, you gravitate to a – you do the first three degrees and then you're gravitated to a lodge. So someone like me would have gone into Canonbury or one of the research lodges. There was a lodge in Canonbury they used to dangle in front of me that had Michael Bajan and all these other authors and research. And they said, you join in, you did we'll fast track you and you can go and be with all these other. Mm. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to join. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Out of interest, why, why didn't you want to join? There's a number of reasons with Freemasons. There are things I don't like about Freemasonry. You do go off into lodges those lodges are not very well policed so there could quite easily be a lodge of paedophiles in operation uh, it'd right. be very hard to police um it'd be very hard to stop and the masons kind of used but well, they did have a rule that you weren't allowed to drop another mason in it so if you knew a mm. mason had committed a crime you couldn't really call the police so that lent right. itself to all sorts of issues and yeah a lot of the people in freemasonry aren't actually freemasons or the kind of people that know enough there are real pockets of fantastic researchers though, and people that are really taking it forward um and i'm great with that but i i don't really feel it would add anything to what i already knew um and i did feel that as an author i was at risk of being told what i couldn't couldn't publish uh, right, yeah. so there could be some level of censorship i don't think there would have been uh, i did the Priory of Scion book, I had to take some things out of it that the Priory of Scion asked me to remove, which we can come mm. to. And that is the crossover between secret mm. societies and the secret service, where people that are good at keeping <laughs> secrets are often in both. And I discovered things okay. like the Order, of, the Order of Lazarus, for example, has a lot of people in the special forces in it and in the military, but from completely different countries on completely opposing sides of some wars. And they're all in the same lodges and the same groups. So they were fascinating. What? Is this a contemporary thing or has this been going yes. on for... No, well, the Order of Lazarus, they claim lineage back to the... Um, they were founded around the time of the Templars. Uh, so they were founded during the Crusades. Whether they've got unbroken lineage, I doubt. Um, but they're mm. surprisingly quite Christian. They're quite a more, more orthodox Christian version. But they seem to have attracted a lot of generals and officers and seniors and at one point during the Cold War, there were Russians and Americans in the same 
order in the same lodges now. So that was that's, really interesting to be around. That's bizarre. Uh, well, you'll find that a lot of secret service oh. come out of secret societies mm-hmm. because they're using the same tools. They're using exactly um, I mean, an interesting mm. crossover between cults and secret societies is the assassins. Because a, mm, a lot of secret yeah. societies have a political aspect as well. The Illuminati were very mm. political. They were very. Mm. Their intention was to rid Europe of royal fa- royal rule, so to give people mm. back the right to rule. They've been that are excellent beyond politics, in my opinion. They believed in a meritocracy, where the people that were in power were the ones that knew the most about that subject. So you had a you know your head of education, your head of say health today your MP for health, would be somebody who'd spent his life working in health and had a PhD in health management. Not somebody well, who's got a nice. PhD. Not somebody who's got a degree in ancient history and wouldn't <laughs> yeah. get a job as a cleaner if he turned up to a hospital. You know, the complete <laughs> yeah. opposite. And this was yeah, 300 years ago. And they were saying, well, the people that should be running the government should be the people who are best at running the government or running those roles. Mm. You know, you want a minister for education who's had a career in education and understands education, not somebody who's just a number counter, a bean counter. Mm. So they were very political, and that that has happened um, throughout history. Uh, I, I, was, I mentioned the Ishmaelis, the assassins. I mean, they were political. They were a political tool. They were a weapon. Um, but they were also mystical and a cult. They were mm. a cult in the cult sense as well. So they're, they're very much secret society and cult. But the way they behaved was definitely like the secret service. They would infiltrate something the Sufis do today. Um, the Sufis have this idea that any group, whatever people you're among, you behave like that people. You become like that people. So the Sufis potentially can infiltrate anything. They can stand amongst football hooligans and chant, you know, or they can sit in a Buddhist monastery and and meditate and that was the kind of one of the sufi things which again are somewhere between a cult and a secret society they're on that gray area my knowledge of the sufis is pretty superficial i'd always just uh, pegged them as a group of islamic mystics so is there a a sort of political agenda behind them i guess not so much political uh, but more in terms of mm. infiltration, they have the potential. But but to what end? I think the idea is that you can go into any group and elevate them to some extent. Being around oh, right. Sufis okay. is quite uplifting. So mm. if you discover you're in the company of one, you're generally quite buoyant. <laughs> they they <laughs> can have that impact on you. I don't think it's anything uh, negative, but they still are very close to members and they're very hard to get into and they're quite restrictive and quite hidden. And they do have secret practices. Um, that are quite removed. But the Ishmaelis and the assassins were were kind of a, a cult, a mystical cult, and they would take people through a drug-induced ritual, which would show mm. them paradise, and then they would become a loyal follower uh, and do what was bid of them. But then they behaved not only as a secret society, but almost like the secret service. They could do assa- remote assassinations and things like that. They would infiltrate countries. They would go out into the world become exactly like the people they'd infiltrated until they were activated uh, and were given an order. Yeah, sleeper agents, the original sleeper agents. Yeah, yeah, the original, um, and still active today. The Ishmaelis, uh, the head of the Ishmaelis is the Aga Khan, I believe. So there's a a bit of John Wick 3, 
where he goes out into the <laughs> desert and meets the head. And I thought, wow, you really did your research. <laughs> Which makes no sense in the, in the terms of the film. It makes no sense because all of it's set in New York or somewhere in America. And all this group of assassins. And it's like, I've got to go and meet the head yeah. of the order. Suddenly we're in the Arabian desert. Okay, good. Well done. You based this on something more than just Hollywood. <laughs> You've gone for the assassins. Um, so in amongst this, so at the one end, you've got cults, which are a better term for them is new religious movements. Cults is a very mm. kind of down term. Yeah. yeah. And the majority of them are harmless. So I think there were over 200 cults registered in London, roughly at any given time. That's just London because yeah. the okay, uh, local yeah. authorities keep track of them. Most of them are quite small, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, they're, t- they're like four or five people. They yeah. tend to be harmless. Um, we only hear about the really extreme ones. Um, mm. But they do tend to have, they're more spiritual, around a spiritual idea or charismatic leader, particularly. The thing to remember is all religions began as cults, whether it's Jesus mm. and his followers, Muhammad and his group, Buddha. Uh, they're all cults. Yeah. So when people look at cults and they think, oh, that's a terrible thing, it's like, well, it is until it becomes popular, <laughs> until it becomes yeah. mainstream, and then it's not cult anymore. Then it's then it's something wonderful, you know. Uh, it, then it's accepted with all its bizarre practices, and so there is that difference. So usually, cults and secret societies differ very much in that that way, and and also how cults recruit. The weird one, the one that's in the middle there, is the magical orders, which you said about. Mm. A lot of them. I, I don't know many magical orders. I've known various people in the Golden Dawn at various times, and the, my research with them has crossed over. So there are groups like the Rosicrucians, but these were all Masonic groups. And the, mm-hmm. the Masons would have these research lodges and these, these groups that would do practical masonry. Um, so you have masonry in theory and then in practice. And a practical tended to be ritual and it tended to be magical. And it was those people okay. that really seemed to then build out of that things like the golden dawn and the magical orders mm. they tend to all have their roots and if you look at yeah if you look at the golden dawn lodge it's a masonic lodge it was well, a rosicrucian lodge it's got rosicrucian symbolism and things like that and it's um, it's kind of an extension of that which freemasons were doing anyway um but i see a lot in the magical orders that i've looked at not so much things like witchcraft which is more of a, a, a different route back to a pagan origin mm. it's looking for a different path um more through natural magic and <clears throat> and nature um it's equally valid but it, it's just a different path that probably some of the tenets of that were carried through secret societies and protected yeah. certainly during the times of oppression um so there is, it may have gone to ground and just been held as part of a wider library and we have libraries like the fall of constantinople i think a lot came out of that there's ideas that Stuff certainly came back with the Templars. Uh, they were meeting, uh, the Templars and Ishmaelis were meeting. Um, so there was a lot of exchange of knowledge. And they were there for 200 years, so they became part of the Middle East. Um, so there, there is this influx of information around the time of Constantinople where this stuff comes into the West and we start to see Kabbalah. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. the Jews and brought Kabbalah and alchemy with them anyway. Um, who are variously oppressed, and um, certainly there would be groups of them in France and Spain. Um, so some of that kind of esoteric knowledge was coming in. But these secret societies at various points gather this information up, and they start to build these books of hermetic arts, 
and these hermetic libraries. Uh, the Rosicrucians were very big on it uh, and, and on experimenting with alchemy and things like that and doing the actual chemical work uh, and trying to replicate these things. And a lot of that, I think, then breaks off into magical orders where groups just purely focus on um, those aspects, uh, the occult aspects of secret societies, and they become a magical order. Um, mm. A lot of these spring up. There are various points. Cults, incidentally, spring up in a spiritual vacuum um, because you have what's called – spirituality exists everywhere in the world at every point in history. It's inherent mm. in human nature. So when yeah. a dominant spirituality fails, say it, you have an event like World War Two, where all your Christian soldiers go off and don't come back and your children go away and they just die. It doesn't matter what, how much praying you do or how much going to school church you do they all just die and you lose them after that not perhaps that generation but the one that follows that generation loses faith and the one that follows is brought into a vacuum so after the second world war you get a spring of cults and then you get the 60s movement where people are like mm. none of that worked what else is out there and we all have some at some level a spiritual need and if you don't address mm. that need you arrive at what's called that a crisis of meaning where you realize, mm. is this it? You know, job, kids, mortgage, death. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Is that all I mean? Is that all I stand for? <laughs> so Dante's Inferno is a really good example because it starts with that in the middle of my life, in the middle of the forest. Mm. So, um, and he sees the door saying, abandon hope or you enter. That is a perfect midlife crisis right there in the middle of his life. <laughs> He's lost in the woods. And it's like, <laughs> yes. yeah, this is it. What the hell am I going to do? I can't go out and buy a sports car. I'm going to have to. <laughs> I'm going to have to deal with all this stuff I've not dealt with before, which is what he goes and does. Um, so that really fed into the cult movement, you know. And a lot of the ones we see that have appeared, the science fiction cults in particular, and things like that, mm. spring up yes. in that where you've got nuclear war, fear of technology. You know, technology is rushing, and and science and everything is getting out of hand. And somebody says. We're spiritual and we manage science. We've got both. And it's like, oh, that's what I'm looking for. No, it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, personality, that personality test you're about to do, do you know where that goes? Because <laughs> they keep that very secret. Because <laughs> at some yes. point, they're going to ask you to hand over control of your brain to a 10 billion year old alien. And if they told you that, at the, at the door, you would never have gone in. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I think you covered a lot of that already. Uh, yeah. But I, on the other hand, I, that's fundamentally, I don't know, it doesn't seem very different once you break past the surface to um, submission to God in all aspects of your life. That, you know, it, it is... Uh, yeah, in mainstream religion, if you've got someone who is incredibly devout, uh, who is looking for, looking basically to hand control of their life over to a higher power, that fundamentally isn't that different. No, and I, and there's a risk of that in many many areas. I mean, people who uh, I remember being in Watkins and a kid came in. He was about seventeen, wearing a heavy metal T-shirt, uh, rummaged around for a bit, and came up to the the till with a copy of Alistair Crowley's Goatia, which is hmm. a book for summoning up demons. 
and mm. I had a I had a little chat with him, you know, just to sound him out and where his interest had come from, and it had come from some heavy metal band, and didn't, and that was it, and that was his intention of his first reading on this subject, and I refused to sell him the book, and he absolutely couldn't mm. understand why I'm not <laughs> selling you that book, <laughs> that book, um, and that's to do with the kind of ideas of demonology and. Mm. Uh, a lot of this comes back to psychology and uh, certainly around things like demonology or if you look at that in psychological terms you're trying to dredge up your unconscious and resolve it and it manifests in your life as a problem and if you can identify it and get to know it uh, and relate to it you can work with it and the easiest way to work with a, a, a trapped energy or a trauma is to personify it is almost to give it a personalities you can talk to it you know if you've got one and you get an image for it and it's a lump of rock you can't do a lot with that um but if you personify it as sitting next to you and you hold a conversation you can try and unpick it and find out what it Mm. wants and what what's really what it's really about and try and get to the root of it if you resolve it, it you can transform it into an angel so this whole there's a lot of psychology in that demons and angels you go messing about with that um, potentially thrown in drugs and all sorts, uh, and the right yeah. situation, you can do yourself a lot of harm. And that's another reason secret societies, I think, are still secret, is they have tools that can do people harm if they're used in the wrong circumstances, if they're used in the wrong setup or for the wrong reasons. Mm. I do think if you're starting to go down that psychological path of ritual, that you're, you have the potential to uncover things that in the wrong environment could actually be quite more detrimental than good or could lead you to the wrong conclusions shall we say yeah but on the other hand i you, you talked about how magical societies uh, magical orders have splintered off from some of these secret societies and you know, thanks to the occult boom of the 1970s and obviously alistair crowley before then you know a lot of this stuff has now been published in book form and is out there on the internet in various iterations um, yeah. you, know, you can pick up all of those rituals now, or at least variations or you know, forms of these rituals from the internet without ever meeting another occultist or getting any guidance on yeah. a safe way to approach this stuff. So, I mean, if that's the case, if the secret societies have kept information like this secret as a form of protecting people if the genie is out of the bottle isn't it counterproductive not to try to share their safeguards and their safer ways of working i think it's very hard to do any of this stuff without some i mean you can try and summon up demons if you're stupid enough i guess and Mm. there are probably people trying to do that in dorms in universities (laughs) all over the country as we speak under the influence of various various substances um i don't think it's interesting people like crowley understood if you read something can really understand it and get to the bottom of it in the occult i can pretty much guarantee that if you came across a reference to it crowley would show that he understood it but he wouldn't tell you it and i found this in the book of thoth that I had done a mm-hmm. whole piece of work on the feminine and I'd arrived at one piece of knowledge and he'd stuffed it in one of his cards and mentioned it but not actually explained what he was saying. So if you and oh. it's that alchemical thing where you see this page of symbols and you think 
none of this makes sense to me. But if you come back to it after years of going around the houses, you come back and say, now I got it. But I didn't get it from this. I just recognize it mm -hmm. in there. So he did at some level try and protect some of his knowledge. Um, I mean, he got into a lot of trouble. It's interesting he got into trouble with the um, order of the temple, which was a, a temple mm -hmm. of order for sharing sex magic, which is tantra, basically. Yes. But also yeah. it's part of the alchemical um, side of things, which evidence is that they were using that at the time <laughs> and mm. that that was part of their makeup, even though it was completely hidden from the, the kind of histories of the Templar orders at that time. It was like, oh, hang mm. on, this is actually a central part to what your belief is. So they had things like that. Yeah, I, I do to some extent think that a, all of that is now out there in some form. Whether anyone's piecing it together in a way that's really useful, I'm not sure. I know the Priory of Sion were mm. very wary of alchemical information coming out. There were levels of stuff that they didn't want in the public domain because they thought it could be misused. They thought it would give people power they shouldn't have, which I thought was interesting. interesting. That they had, yeah, they had ideas about um, whether that was psychological power over other people or, or something greater, I don't know. But I always found that interesting. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. As you can probably tell, Rob and I found an awful lot to talk about. And while some of this is a bit on the discursive side, I hope that you find it interesting and inspirational to your games. We'll be back in a fortnight with the conclusion of this discussion. Before then, however, we had the next regular episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias in a week's time. This will be the first part of our multi-part look into H.P. Lovecraft's The Whisperer in Darkness. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com <laughs> <laughs>